Okay, this video is gonna be uh, a little bit tough. I'm going to try and keep it as short as possible. The things that I said in the video title I'm gonna show you, I'm gonna show you quickly. I'm gonna show you as, as rapidly as I can, but I don't want to um, start trying to oversimplify complex, uh, the concepts that are actually quite complicated. Let's talk about healing narcissists, okay? Like, do I believe it's possible? So yes, I believe it's possible to heal a narcissist. On the condition, heal narcissist on condition. Okay, so I'm gonna describe the um, condition and then I'm gonna describe what it would take, the, the, the key points for actually healing narcissism. The condition is that we acknowledge and understand and have an acceptance of CPTSD in its totality, all of it. You have to understand CPTSD, CPTSD, and I highly recommend the book, though it's not the only one, CPTSD from Surviving to Thriving by Pete Walker. So you've got to understand CPTSD and this must be approached from a CPTSD perspective. That means we also are on the condition that we understand the four Fs, fight, flight, freeze, and fawn, and how they develop from childhood trauma. So, no, we're no longer saying narcissism is the opposite of CPTSD, and we're no longer saying narcissism is the opposite of codependency. We're accepting that narcissistic personality disorder is codependency, and we're accepting that narcissistic personality disorder is a post-traumatic protective stress response to childhood trauma. On the four Fs, it falls within fight and fawn. Got that? Once we've got that, we can proceed. So how would I heal NPD? I would treat it as though it was CPTSD. So the first thing that you have to do, number one, is you have to deal with the emotional dysregulation. Um, <clears throat> there are many well-intentioned uh, people on YouTube who really want to help people um, with narcissistic abuse and recovery from narcissistic abuse. But for every one person who really is well-intentioned, and I believe that they are, there is now 10, 12, 13, 14, 15, it's growing every week, people who just want to sell t-shirts, they just want to get Google ad revenue, and they want to sell their overpriced coaching services and they are repeating utter bullshit. Now, you'd say, ah, so you don't like that because they're your competition. And I would say, listen, I don't do this for money. This is not where my money comes from. I have a business that's, that goes back to 2004. That's where my money comes from. Whether people watch this stuff or not, that's up to them. What does irritate me though, is when the victims of narcissistic abuse, of which I am one, struggle and get caught up in the nonsense of people online who are feeding them just, it's not disinformation, but it's, it's poor information. The narcissist is extremely moody. That's what emotional dysregulation means. The people online, are, many of them are telling you that they're cold, that they have a flat affect, that they really don't feel anything at all. And then people come to me and they'll be like, I need to ask you a question. And I'll go, okay, ask me a question, make it one sentence long and end in a question mark. And they'll say, if the narcissist feels nothing, 
why do they X, Y, Z on Christmas Day? And I'd be like, whoa, 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 whoa. What is this huge, ridiculous, absurd presupposition baked into your question? Narcissistic personality disorder should be, is not in the DSM, but fundamentally should be um, identified by emo massive emotional dysregulation. They are hugely moody. Everything that they're trying to do is to regulate their self-esteem. What a neurotypical person does is they work inside and they go, oh, I don't feel very good. I should do something that regulates my emotions. The specific emotion they're trying not to feel is shame. So somebody the other day said, Richard Grannon, you've said that the shame, that narcissistic personality disorder is shame-based. But then you did a video that said that they are shameless. So here's where one of the many, many problems comes from trying to distill academic material, published research down into bite-sized chunk YouTube videos. A tremendous amount gets lost. There is a difference between a trait, an emotion, and a behavior. The behavior appears to be shameless. There appears to be a lack of healthy shame, but ironically enough, and it's not easy to understand, and I won't apologize for that. It's like apologizing for the fact the sky is blue and water is wet. It's just the way it is. Even when they engage in seemingly shameless behavior, it is to avoid very deep-seated feelings of shame that come from their emotional flashbacks. So number one, we need to re-regulate them and we have to deal with these things called emotional flashbacks. Why does the narcissistic, uh, narcissist attack? Why do they provoke? Why are they predatory? Why do they lie? Why do they hurt? All of that you can feed back to trying to avoid massive amounts of abandonment, terror, and shame. Huge feelings of shame, and possibly even more than shame, sadness. I did a video called The CPTSD Archetype of the Sad Baby. I'll link to it at the end of this video. I highly recommend you watch it. I was talking about codependence. I was talking about the victims of narcissistic abuse. But actually, the sad baby is probably far more relevant to the uh, NPD than it is to the victim of the NPD. What I was saying in that video briefly is that some of these emotional flashbacks, this is already getting complicated. I'm sorry about that. I'm not sorry about that. I'm not codependent anymore. You're just gonna have to suck it up and deal with it. It's complicated. It's not my fault. Emotional flashbacks um, here, what I was suggesting is it's not just that you feel sadness, you feel shame, you feel guilt, you feel joy, you feel love, you feel what it is, but you actually feel a specific combination of four or five emotions at certain levels and they create a melange of emotion that shows up almost as a new personality. So imagine you showed up and you felt um, confident, excited, giddy, energized, super optimistic, really happy, and uh, you were just getting surges of joy. You would show up as a certain personality, right? If you showed up and you were cranky, you were jealous, you were angry, you were bitter, you were resentful, you were envious of other people's victories, and you were, you were feeling, um, you were feeling uh, um, vindictive. You would show up as a different personality, but it's emotions that bring you there, right? 
So a certain cluster of emotions create certain archetypes. So your emotional flashbacks, I am hypothesizing. This is now not published research from people with degrees and doctorates and PhDs. This is my hypothesis that you're, you will show up as a certain archetype and that actually the NPD is archetypal because of the coordinates of five peculiar emotions or six peculiar emotions or seven, I'm saying peculiar, I mean particular emotions, sorry, I mean particular emotions. And so it's archetypal in the sense of it being like, um, like a morphogenetic field. It's out there as a thing that people can be. I'm not saying anything mystical. I'm not talking about angels and demons and religion and God here. Not at all. I'm still well within the realm of psychology here, but I'm saying there's an archetype. So why do they all show up the same? People say, why is my narcissist do exactly what your narcissist does? You know what my narcissist said to me on my birthday? My narcissist, bless you. He said this, oh my God, my narcissist said exactly the same thing. But my narcissist is female, uh, 62 from Taiwan, and your narcissist is male, uh, 21, and from the Dominican Republic. They don't speak the same language. They're on different sides of the world. They're from completely different cultures. They're from completely different environments. They're totally different ages, so they were raised in a different culture, and they're saying the same shit. Why? Because of this. Because of this. They're showing up as an archetype. The, the archetype I put forward was the sad baby. So the sad baby shows up, and I was noticing this in codependence, where they wouldn't help themselves. So I would be like, go and do an exercise on emotional literacy, pick up a piece of paper and a pen. And they go, I won't, uh, no, sorry, not I won't, I can't, I can't, I can't do it. And then I was hanging around with my nephews and I think like one of them wanted to grab a pen or a phone off me. And I went, no, because I need that now. And he got really, really sad. And he lay on his back going, uh, uh, uh. And I was like, damn, some of my clients are like this. I'm like this sometimes. Uh, 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 I can't, I'm the baby now, empathy. I can't speak. I want the thing. I don't know why I want the thing, but I need you to give it to me because I'm a baby. I need you. So also needs others. Cannot do it myself. So I started thinking about it. Like one, one of the babies, I think he's now nine months and the other baby is two years and four months. So, so I can hang out with them together and I can go, ah, oh, uh, so when you want something, you just have to, you just have to like scream or cry or shake or go, ah, cause you don't have motor function. And the other baby, a little toddler, he's, he, I caught, I was playing with him one day and he wanted to throw a ball with me, but he wanted to go outside the garden, but he's not allowed outside the garden. It's, but there's no gate to stop him. So his, his parents have just said, you can't go further than that. So we're playing with the ball and he, he, he looks at me. He looks at the ball and he goes, I want to go outside, but I don't have the agency to go outside. So he, he looks away from me and he drops the ball and then he turns to me and he goes, uh-oh, ball gone. And I'm like, mm-hmm, who does he want to go and get that ball? Well, it's going to be the adult that has to go and get the ball because he doesn't have the agency. So I started to look at manipulative or exploitative behavior um, in childhood that comes because you can't do it yourself. So you need to employ other people. Are we not recruits? Have I not used that 
example of being like recruits. I think in one video I said where we're the actors in a film and we have a job to do on set and if we don't do it, we get, we, we get bent. They recruit us. We are their recruits, we're their employees. They're, they hire um, us, they don't pay, unfortunately. It's slave labor. So the sad baby archetype was important, but then there's another archetype and it's um, grumpy or angry baby or angry toddler now perhaps a little bit further along in the developmental um, process. So you could say that the archetype there is like, as, as I mentioned before, you know, cranky because the moods are up and down, especially if they're not getting narcissistic supply. They think they're amazing and then they get feedback from the environment like a shitty comment on a YouTube post that says, you're not as clever as you think you are. Fuck you. Mm. And they get angry. So they go from sad baby Mummy's, mummy's not, um, not, not coming to help me or, or, or my uncle's not coming to help me into angry baby. It's like, right, so you're not going to do this, are you? <laughs> you get the, the rage, the temper tantrum. So we'll say it's cranky. We could say it's vindictive. Listen, let me say this loud and clear. Children can't be narcissists. Don't start applying this to your kids. Don't start talking about abandonment, anxiety, and all of that with five-year-olds. They're not there yet. This is all totally natural, totally healthy behavior. Totally natural, totally healthy. What's not healthy sometimes is the behavior of adults around them. So if a baby is sad and is crying and lives their life in an environment where when they cry, nothing happens and they don't get help, they'll make the switch from sad baby, which is a more what we would think of as the classically codependent fawn responder, but there's another element to that that, that is necessary that we, we'll get into later. Um, they'll go from sad baby into angry toddler. And there's only like four or five attributes. They're cranky, they're selfish, they're grumpy, they're vindictive. They're, there might be elements of, of sadism there. They might want to hurt people or punish people. So usually we'd say it's punitive. There's a punitive ele element there. You know, you didn't do the thing for me, so now I'm going to smash a Tonka truck into your shin. Ha! fine. It's, that is in children, healthy, normal. It's a phase. Children are supposed to go through a phase of healthy narcissism. They're supposed to be egocentric. They're the center of the universe and that's it. Totally healthy. Then they're supposed to grow out of it. In the case of the narcissistic personality disorder, they never do. So to heal this, we need to understand the emotional dysregulation. Sorry, I should have ne uh, numbered this. Emotional dysregulation. We, well, first of all, the number one condition is you've got to understand CPTSD and you've got to accept that NPD is not um, demonic. It's, um, it's a response to trauma. It's a protective response to trauma. The child is, you know, NPD, we say it's fight fawn, but strictly speaking, they have, a, they have to have a very active imagination. They have to be able to dissociate. Uh, so they've, they've experienced trauma that caused them to just leave their body. That's how they form the false self. That's how they create the false self um, uh, sort of fantasy that they live inside of, that they're wonderful and they're amazing is because their imagination is exceptional. Their imagination only becomes exceptional through repeated trauma over time because they're not, nobody's coming. Okay, ah, 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 nobody's coming. Ah, ah, nobody's coming. Ah, ah, uh, uh, nobody's coming. And then you start the eyes glaze over and they'll, they'll fade out of this reality. They'll just create a new reality where their pain doesn't matter or somebody is coming 
or they're the one who comes, or maybe all three. The pain doesn't matter. No, there's nobody here to, to help. I'm the one who helps. I'm the one who saves me. I'll become godlike mummy or godlike daddy. Not adult, real human mummy or daddy. I'll become the godlike. Because to the sad baby, that's God. The hand comes down from the clouds and gives you the biscuit. The hand comes down from the clouds and gives you the pen. It's, it's magical. It's, it's beyond explanation. It's like, I want the thing, Lord. Where's and they can't see, apparently. Uh, babies don't really see us the way we see each other. They have to learn to do that. So there's just shapes and noise and feelings. Lord, why have you forsaken me? Oh, the pen. I have the pen. Put it in my mouth. That's what they do, right? It's impulsive, natural, healthy. But if it goes on for too long, these archetypes start to build up. So first of all, we have to accept the CPTSD. Once we've got that condition that overrides everything else I'm going to tell you right now, then we've got to deal with their emotional dysregulation. Then we've got to deal with this archetype. There has to be some therapeutic work done around the fact that when they are emotionally dysregulated, they're showing up with the same five or six emotions from toddlerhood again and again and again. Like if somebody leaves you a shitty YouTube comment and you're 42, it's not helpful to respond from an archetype from a personality that's made up of six emotions that would be appropriate for a, a toddler to have. So we've got to deal with the emotional dysregulation. We've got to deal with the fact that this is an, emo this is an emotional flashback is what I'm suggesting. So I'm going further than the Pete Walker book. I'm going beyond the uh, CPTSD from surviving to thriving and saying, we all do this. Whether you have MPD, psychopathy or, 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 or not, you're, you're not this at all you will have a specific combination of... So when you broke up with your ex, because you're probably only here because you split up with your ex-husband, your ex-wife, boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever it is, and now you're in a lot of pain, that specific pain that you're in is changing you. You're becoming the person who feels pain. And the pain is enormously intense because it's probably taking you back to another period of your life where there was no... There's no plug on this. There's no valve on this. This is just boundary smashing amounts of pain and suffering that I'm feeling. So we've got to deal with the emotional dysregulation. We've got to deal with the fact that the emotional dysregulation is popping up as a certain archetype. So if I was in, if you wanted to make a, a valiant uh, effort to help somebody with NPD, this is the route I'd go. I'd emotionally re-regulate them. We have exercises for that. We look at the specific archetype that's showing up from the emotions. And when this personality shows up, we would handle it as a, a complex emotional flashback, as an archetypal emotional flashback, right? So you're focused on the emotional flashbacks. What's the next thing I've told you that you have to do when it comes to dealing with CPTSD? And this is absolutely uh, key for um, helping narcissists to recover. The next thing I told you to do is to um, overcome the superego. There's a superego problem. I know that this sounds complicated. A lot of people get confused when I say the word superego, but it's actually very, very straightforward. One second. Oh, my knees are fine. Thank you for asking. Um, it's, a, it's a concept from Freud. And what it means is that you have a part of you that is regulating um, 
moral behavior. It's regulating right and wrong, and it's telling you whether you're doing a good thing or a bad thing. It's a good part of you, you need it. It's part of a trinity of parts that you have. You have the ego, which is your normal everyday personality, the id, this is really dirty. Why did this get so dirty? The id, and then you have um, the superego. So the id is like you're in a child. It's like you when you're a toddler. The ego is your yourself that you show the world when you're chatting day to day, your personality. But then you have something above all that. And this is key if the narcissist is gonna heal, which is called the superego. Now, super here just means above and it regulates the ego. It uh, justifies the ego's decisions. So super ego is not like Superman or it's super good or it's super powerful. It means above. So this is above the ego. So I usually draw it like a lamppost with a light on looking down at the ego. Huh? It's like a parent. The parent looks down on the child and tells the child what's right or wrong. Bear with me one second because I really want you to grasp what this is. Because if you do, you'll be head and shoulders above 99% of the fucking hot garbage from Satan's bumhole that's out there on narcissism that's holding people back. Because they don't understand what a codependent is. They don't really understand what a narcissist is. And they think it means somebody who's been mean to me. And because of this, they can't recover. This is a chance, a chance for people with NPD to actually recover. So you can see, you can deduce, uh, I'm sure that this is how the superego developed is, is when you were a little kid, is that you had a parent looking down at you, checking in on you, seeing what you were up to. And whatever they said to you, whatever uh, words they fed to you, that then goes in and starts to develop into the superego. And you might go, but they didn't say to me anything about right and wrong. You're saying it's about morals. Y yes, um, they might have taught you about right and wrong, but it doesn't mean like a moral code or value system in quite such an explicit way. It's far more implicit than that. Think about spending time with a very small child uh, who is two, three years old, and they can perambulate. They have the two legs and they do the walking. And you have to watch them to keep them safe. You'll notice as they go on their voyage of discovery in the world, they come across things and then they'll see a thing and then they do their two-legged squat where they just drop down and then they'll pick the thing up and then they'll look at it. What do they do next? They look at you. They look at you to your facial expression, to your tone of voice to tell them yes, no, good, bad, pick up, put down. You may have that, you may not have that. They're waiting for an injunction. They're waiting for you to give them an injunction. Yes, no, good, bad. Similarly, as they're perambulating through the world, you'll notice when they hurt themselves, pain, I fell off the table, I banged my foot, I did this or that. Before they um, begin uh, the, the, the crying, often, not always, they'll look to you. They'll look to another adult, tell me how bad this is so I can gauge how loud to cry. It's, it's so, so obviously they're experiencing pain as well, but part of their response is, you tell me how bad this is. Is it good? Is it bad? Is it yes? Is it no? Do I cry? Do I laugh? Understand? So that then gets internalized 
So we have a parent inside of us that like a child, when a thing happens, we sort of look to and go, is it, what, what does it mean? And the superego says good, bad, yes, no. So the superego, here is, it gets a little more complicated, which is the superego is to tell you yes, no, good, bad, up, down, how to place meaning on something, whether it is external or internal. So it judges the world as it makes judgments about what is good, what is bad, should I take this path or that path? Should I marry this beautiful lady or this beautiful lady? If only we were tortured by such decisions, that would be pleasant indeed. And so it helps with that, but it judges us too. Now, what happens in the case of NPD? So we're on step three here. I'm sorry this is taking so long. I really am trying to simplify it as much as possible without cutting anything out. Step three of dealing with the superego. This child was raised in an abusive environment. So the injunctions from the superego, sorry, the injunctions from the parent are abusive. They are labile. They're based on whether mummy is drunk today or sober today, whether daddy's in a good mood or a bad mood. So it's up and down. So the child looks and it's one rule today, one rule tomorrow. Sometimes I'm a good little boy, a good little girl, and sometimes I'm a worthless piece of shit that mummy or daddy is going to hit or say bad things to or ignore, and I'm going to feel bad. So what happens as we go through this internalization process? So this then has to become internalized is you're internalizing a bad parent. You're internalizing an abuse, let's say not bad, abusive. You're internalizing an abusive parent. So now you have an internalized abusive superego that's telling you internally and externally things are wrong. This sucks. It's not stable. You're not safe. Nobody's safe. The world isn't safe. See what I'm saying? And does this sound familiar? So it goes up and down. That's why they're so emotionally uh, labile. That's why there's such emotional dysregulation and moodiness. It's the superego's fault. Now imagine the abuse was so strong that the ego, the, the, the kid, the boundaries started to break. Imagine the boundaries breaking. This is what you have, I believe, with victims of, of codependent abuse. Highly porous ego boundaries, an extremely abusive childhood. And, and abusive can also be judgment. Abuse, abuse can be silent. Abuse can be being too strict. Abuse can be never saying to a child, well done. Have you ever said to a child, oh, well done, and seen how much they love that, how much they need that, how they, they soak that in from an adult who's looking over their shoulder. So the superego is looking over your shoulder. You're well done. What did you find? Wow, that's cool. You're clever. And they go, yeah, I fucking know I am because I found the stone, which I don't think has been found before. And then they feel uh, some self-esteem. They're going, I'm worthy. I feel good. I feel good about being me. I feel good about being me. And that levels up inside of them. And there's this, there's over and over again. I go, wow, that's good. Yes, that's great. Well done. Well done. Right the way through until he or she is, you know, 18, 19, 20 years old. And I'm not going, wow, you did your GCSEs. Well done. But I'm doing the equivalent of that. 
I'm going, well done. That was really good. You worked really hard and you did so well on this subject and this subject and this subject that you hated. You still came through on it. Well done. That's great. It's still the same thing. And the superego is becoming positive. It's becoming helpful. That child growing up into an adult can now see good, bad, right, wrong, left, right. And it's clear to them. For somebody with broken ego boundaries like a codependent, it's not clear. And it's very easy for somebody else to infringe on our ego boundaries. When we are actually moving all the way through to narcissism, and I'm not the first person to say this, um, and, and Sam Backman has said the same thing, is actually there is no ego. There's only superego. Could you imagine? So you have no ego boundaries. So you are everything and everything is you. That's supposed to be romantic. That's terrifying. But that's pure, unadulterated narcissism. There's no boundary between me and the world. There's no boundary between me and you. I'm everything. God is everywhere and I'm God. God is all powerful. I'm God, I'm goddess, I know it all. I'm surrounding, I've got the whole world in my hands. I've got the whole galaxy in my hands. So there's no boundary at all. And you go, well, why are they so egotistical? Because there is a superego and it's fucking ferocious. It's vicious. The vicious attacks that you receive when you're, um, so there's, say you're in partnership with this zero ego, but only superego person, there's no boundaries between them and you. So when the superego attacks them, may as well attack you. In the CPTSD literature, we call this inner and outer critic. The inner critic is the superego attacking the self. And the um, outer critic is when it makes judgments about other people and the world and goes, that sucks, that's worthless, that's useless, it needs to be attacked. So we then have to deal with the superego. And this is where I am less hopeful of, um, of therapeutic progress. Because when we do coaching and therapy with people, if somebody has weak ego boundaries, the coaching process basically strengthens their boundaries. So when I do work with people or I do like a 30 day challenge with people and I'm giving them exercises, the exercises, one of the things is there to do is to give them a stronger sense of self. So the ego boundaries heal. There's no ego here. There's only super ego. So where's the um, executive function, the agent that you can communicate with to make th therapeutic progress? It's not there. There's just a fucking savage, ferocious superego there. So you've got to work on the emotional flashbacks first. And then the next step would be to, to explain to the NPD, look, mate, your superego is vicious and it's out of control and it doesn't want you to make progress. Why? Because this is mommy or this is daddy and the injunctions down we're not just you're worthless and you're a piece of shit. Because if that was the injunction downward, you probably would just end up with the victim of narcissistic abuse, the fawn responder. Probably. The, there were two different injunctions. Let's make, this, let's make this the fourth thing that needs to be resolved. So there's two separate injunctions. You are good and you are bad. Because for NPD to be NPD and not psychopathy there has to have been a degree of spoiling there. So this is the fourth thing is where the superego splits and starts saying, you're all good, but really extremely good. 
the best, the hugest, the biggest, the, 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 the bestest, the wealthiest, the sexiest, the most beautiful, and it's extreme. So it always goes to uh, one extreme or you're all bad. And so as you're, say, if you were doing uh, coaching or therapy work with a narcissist, if they weren't in, if you say to them, look, you're not the king of the world, you're not God, um, you can't treat people like this because there's terrible consequences to your life, so on and so forth, and they accept it, which they can do. They can actually accept that. They go, yeah, I'm, I've, I don't see my kids anymore because the mother has put out a restraining order on me or, or a woman saying, you know, my life sucks. I've been through so many relationships and everybody keeps telling me the same thing, which is I'm, you know, this dreadful monster and I really, really want, I want to be loved. I want to heal. That's the only way that you're going to get the NPD into therapy is if they're effing desperate. And they've got here and you say to them, so say if you do it uh, the wrong way, you go, listen, you have to accept that you're not God. It's not hard to get the narcissist to accept that they're not God. But the very next thing that happens is they swing all the other way and they'll go, you're right. I'm a piece of shit. I'm worthless. I'm the foam from the poop in the sewer. Jesus, that's awful. I'm sorry I said that now. Um, but that's, that's where they go. It's not helpful. There's no therapeutic use in that because neither of these things are true. The truth that's so hard for them to accept is they're just a person. They're just a person. You're not the world's best and you're not the world's worst. You're not special. You're not especially good. You're not especially bad. Your suffering wasn't special. Your experience wasn't special. You're just a person, same as the rest of us. You're just a person and that's the truth because scientifically, rationally, objectively, by any measure that's outside of <laughs> the lunatic, psychotic world view of the narcissistic psychopath, they are. They have two eyes, a, you know, a nose, a head. They eat food and then they poop and then they go to sleep and then they wake up every day, same as everybody else. It's a fantasy. But how do you get them past the fantasy that's kept them alive for life? So in the therapeutic uh, process, you'd have to respect the fact that the fantasy that they're clinging onto so hard is that is a little child holding onto that fantasy. And that lifeboat has gotten through life up until now. And they're scared that if they let go of it, that they will die. It's a death grip they have on that fantasy. So working them through to this truth would be difficult. How do we deal with the superego? It's difficult because what I was going to say before is there's, you know, the, the, these are the messages of a bad parent. You're, you're wonderful. You're angelic. Oh, you're the best piano player. You're the best artist. You're, you're the fittest um, swimmer at age, whatever you were when, you know, there has to be some narcissistic supply for narcissism to develop. Otherwise it's going to be psychopathy. If it's pure abuse and you're worthless, you're nothing, you're shit and everything in your life is shit, you become a psychopath. To be a narcissist, there has to be vanity there. So you need to be receiving two different messages from both parents, from one parent, it doesn't really matter. It could even be one message from the parents and then another message from an institution, like a school, a boarding school, the military, your swim team, your maths team. Somebody needs to tell you you're exceptional. Somebody needs to say you really are the you know the, the best thing in the world so that you have this split the narcissist whether they're a fragile narcissist or a grandiose narcissist that's not an intrinsic personality type 
It's a strategy. It's about the, that's not about the internal world, if they're fragile or if they're grandiose. That's about whether they win or not. So the narcissist is trying to stay here. They're fighting, they're fighting. Imagine a pendulum, like in Edgar Allan Poe, the, the pendulum, and it's swung one way, and the narcissist goes, Hoo! and grabs it, hold it, hold it in place. The pendulum must stay here or I'm gonna die in this, uh, you know, Edgar Allan Poe's uh, torture chamber of the pit and the pendulum. I'm going to die. Hold on. It's hard and it makes me, it's effort and it makes me cranky and it's difficult and I'm hypervigilant and I'm constantly trying to reprocess reality so that I'm the king, so that I'm the queen, so that I'm God, goddess. That's the pendulum swung towards your good. But if it swings, it doesn't stay here and go, oh, I'm not really good. I'm not really bad. I guess I'm just trying to make it the same as everybody else. It goes, Vroom. here, you're the world's worst. You are worthless. You're nothing. And you go, no, the grandiose narcissist doesn't do that. That's only the vulnerable narcissist. And I'd say, yes, fine. Well done. You managed to read the research and go somewhat beyond the fucking seven minute long YouTube video. Thank you. But I think they're wrong. Who the fuck am I to think they're wrong? Ah, I'm just a dude. I have access to a camera and internet connection, so I can say this. I think they're wrong. I think it's one of the fundamental flaws of psychology, and I mean the whole of psychology. It's about the medicalization of, a, of what is fundamentally a philosophical endeavor. These are like philosophical problems. Not, they're not, I don't think that, much, that psychology has much to do with biology. 95% of psychology is not biology. There is a 5% for sure of cases. I'm saying percentages. I mean clients who show up or people who become institutionalized. They're good 5%. There's a biological issue that can be treated with drugs, that should be treated with chemicals, or maybe they should be given a protocol that switches the chemicals around in the brain, whatever it is. But the other 95% is really in the realm of learning. It's really in the realm of philosophy. It's, it's, it's here. So... Grandiose narcissist is not a personality type to me. I'm not even sure that we should be thinking of narcissism as a personality disorder as well, at all. I think it's much more effective for the victim and for the narcissist, if there's a chance of healing, to think of it as a CPTSD response. It's a learned behavior pattern. Well, if it's been learned, it can be unlearned, right, in theory. So the, the, you have the vulnerable or covert, ugh, I hate that, vulnerable, fragile narcissist, and then you have the overt, classical, grandiose narcissist, the one who's first identified. What's the difference then? The grandiose narcissist is winning this game of the pit and the pendulum. They're holding the pendulum on one side so, and they're convincing everybody else that they're as special as they believe themselves to be, to a degree. I mean, it must be somewhat, always somewhat dissatisfying as a grandiose narcissist because you're never, there's always, there could always be a little bit more worship, a little bit more applause. There's always gonna be other people who sneak ahead of you, but I guess that keeps them in the game, keeps them competing. This, the vulnerable narcissist swings here every day. And then they get, they, they squeak, they just, oh, I got the pendulum. And then it drops again. It's like some, I'm describing like some awful Greek God punishment, Sisyphus, you know, it's there, yes, I won, narcissistic elation, oh no, it's slipping, it's slipping, oh, narcissistic depletion, you know, full balloon, saggy balloon, full balloon, saggy balloon, every day. So how do we, how do we stop this? You've got to understand that part of the superego uh, injunction problem that they're dealing with is not just a parent that said, you're wonderful when you swim well. 
when you do maths good, when you do whatever, when you're funny, then you, you perform, Jim Carrey, Louis C.K. You perform your good object. Yeah, <laughs> it's funny, it's funny. Yeah, that's, that's enough now, go away. But if you don't, then you're worthless. And that's, you know, that's why that, I think a lot of narcissists are addicted to performance. I think we must understand that the applause of the parents and the adulation of the parents has to be mirrored in the applause of the crowd because they've never known love. Narcissists have never known love, never known love and cannot know love. Neither is the codependent. I'm sorry to, it's a bit rough, but your parents didn't love you. But if you're here and you're struggling, it's probably better for you to deal with this now. Your parents didn't really love you. In some cases, your parents probably wanted you dead. You, you fucked your parents' lives up and whether they told you or not, you felt it. And you're a very sensitive child. Your parents didn't love you. This is true for the narcissist and it's true for the, let's call them the perpetual narcissist victim, let's say, for want of a better term, at this, at this precise moment in time. And so you're trying like hell to get the substitute for love. The codependent is addicted to their substitute for love in childhood, which was what? Well, the codependent, and it's not, it's not the right thing to say, but the narcissist victim actually wasn't, um, is not uniquely the codependent in this dyad between the narcissist and the victim. They're both codependent, but only one was parentified. Both are parentified as children. Both have been parentified, but only one of them was parentified in the role of confessor, psychoanalyst, um, mate at the bar, one. And that's the fawn responding, we call them echo, codependent, parentified child, who only ever got love when they showed up and met the narcissistic parents' needs. And they, well, sorry, they never received love, they received time and attention. They received a substitute for love. And then they're hardwired to only receive, I said they, I mean we, are only hardwired to receive a substitute for love in a transactional dynamic, which I covered in my last video. And that's it for life, unless we do something about it. If somebody tries to give you authentic love, you'll be like, what the bloody, Ugh, stop that. What the hell's that? Ugh, no, I want, my, I want my transactional substitution for love. I want a narcissistic person, parent, um, partner, parent. You notice how close they are linguistically, partner and parent. I want my partner parents to pat me on the head and go, there's a good boy, there's a good girl. And I go, oh, oh, thank God. Oh, yeah, now I'm getting my narcissistic supply. I'm sorry, codependent supply. That's a codependent supply. That's the echo supply is when the narcissist goes, you have been good today. I will beat you less. That's it. That's what we fight for. That's what we call that love. For the narcissist, they didn't receive love. They received adulation adulation so they would have been abused and then put on a pedestal sam backman's supposed to be in shot there he is put on a pedestal as sam would say so the child is put on a pedestal and that is their abuse because spoiling is abuse you're not appreciating the child for a child you're supposed to chill with the kid and be like yeah you're fine not, you're the most amazing, beautiful child that has ever childed in the child. You're not supposed to fucking do that because it screws them up. 
So if you're, I mean, if you give a child real love and you spoil them with that kind of attention, they wouldn't grow up into an MPD, but they'd grow up vain. They'd, they'd grow up vain and they'd grow up dismissive of people who didn't repeat that. And they'd have highly pronounced narcissistic traits. So the idea is to bring them back here to truth. The superego injunction down is not just the split. So I've, I've described the difference between the victim and the narcissist. There's another injunction here that's really, really difficult, which is don't rise too high, kid. And the, the codependent and the narcissist both received that injunction from childhood. You had not highly likely, I am speaking now of the likelihood, the statistics, that you had highly narcissistic parents who covertly wanted to keep you down because they felt narcissistic injury when you grew up. You're growing into the world and becoming smart and learning words like, mommy, mommy, I can spell schizophrenia. And on the one hand, she'd be like, wow, I'm so proud of my child who's smarter than all of the other children. But then on the other hand, what starts to creep in is like, I'm not sure I can fucking spell schizophrenia. Hey, fuck this kid, right? Then, then another injunction comes in. It doesn't have to be verbalized or explicit. It can be implicit. The child feels it. Don't rise too high. That's for the codependent and for the narcissist. Still with me? Let me write it down. The injunction, uh, this is not a, a key point. It's a point of understanding for up here. So we put an asterisk here and it's here. This is critical. Don't rise too high. And you could be like the narcissist wants nothing but to raise up. Yes, within the paradigm they were given as a child. So if they were an amazing swimmer, an amazing runner, like a South African runner, got himself into a lot of trouble. If that's what they were good for, that's the paradigm in which they can receive their narcissistic supply. If they were highly cerebral, super intelligent, sent to a university at a very, very young age and given adulation for being one of the smartest kids in a country full of exceptionally smart people, that then becomes the paradigm which they're locked into for life to get narcissistic supply from, for life. So adulation may have come from mum, from dad, but not love. There's never any love. Either they're abusive or they're adulating. They're, they're worshipping the child as a little god, as a little goddess, a little prince, a little princess. And that's really, really unhealthy. But also don't rise too high. So you say, Donald Trump's made millions. He's made billions. He's now, so he's winning. He's not failing to rise too high. Yes, he is. I see a man fighting daily with the injunctions to not be too good. I think that's part of the problem why he's in such a physical mess. Why such, because there would have been, so, so his, his father would have been like, you may make all the money, you must, in fact, not you may, you must, the injunction is, make all the money there is in the world. You must have gold-plated taps. But you, maybe there was something somatic, maybe there was physical abuse there, maybe, maybe I'm not saying necessarily I have insight, but I'm just conjecture. If there was like sexual abuse, sexual abuse creates body image issues. It creates tremendous, I know, I've lived it. It creates tremendous body image issues. Sometimes the desire to bulk up, to bloat up and get very overweight is because the attempt, it might not have been overt sexual abuse, but the child feels if the parent is looking at them as a sexual object, they, they feel that. So there is a rising, but it's within very, very strict boundaries. And you'll notice people stick to that for life. Donald Trump is allowed to be the most powerful, wealthiest man in the world. He's not allowed to heal. He's not allowed to sort his body out. He'll, he'll remain out of shape and overweight until the day he dies. 
his in, e, superego injunction will not let him lose that weight. It's just not going to happen. Um, and so this is what I want to say to you about healing. How do we get past point number three to heal the superego? If the superego registers the healing as don't rise too high, you can't be more healed than me. You can't, says the superego, says the mother, says the father. So when you start to heal and work and do the, the work, the narcissist is highly likely to attack you as the therapist, the group, if you're in a group, and the protocol. I knew that this was, I knew this wouldn't work. I knew this would be shit. All psychologists are um, uh, quacks. It's a, it's a shakedown. I knew that this therapy would work for other people, but nobody understands how how special my trauma is. No, you know, it, 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 they, and then they'll walk away and be like, they couldn't penetrate my mind. It was too, too vast and too complex for their shitty system developed for mere mortals to penetrate. It's not that at all. Because the narcissistic personality disorder, for what, whatever else it might be, in its structure and its functioning is incredibly simple. I mean, everything, everything the narcissist does that people go, oh, it's so complex, you'll never understand them. I'm like, are they getting narcissistic supply or not? That's it. It's super, super simple. I don't think there's another personality issue that you can boil down to that one sentence the way you can with MPD. So how are we going to get them past this? We've got to do a lot of superego work and we need to help the NPD develop an ego like a normal person, neither amazing or shitty, just a person, an ego that can start to resist. It's like uh, me now, I've had ACL surgery and the quad is switched off because I didn't do any, I wasn't allowed to use my leg for two months. So I now have to kind of like make it switch on and I can feel it sluggishly going, Ugh. we have to make the ego switch on in resistance to the superego. We have to have the NPD grow an ego, grow the muscle of the ego by fighting back to the superego. What was one of the things I taught you years ago as far as CPTSD goes? It was to point at Gollum. Pointing at Gollum was so that you could understand that voice, that impulse, that injunction, that's not you. That's your superego. But if you think it is you, you'll start to internalize it and you'll be like, well, I'm just a bad guy. I'm just a bad girl. I just get pleasure from hurting people. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a bad man, innit? I'm just a bad man. I'm a psycho, innit? Yeah. And you start to identify with that. I'm the world's worst. I'm the world's worst narcissistic psychopath. Yeah. And actually what you should be doing is going, that's not me. And when you start to create a gap between the injunction and the ego, there I have hope. There I have hope that you could actually do something. But the narcissist has to be the person who's been diagnosed with NPD. The person who's been diagnosed with this particular CPTSD formation needs to be a tough motherfucker because that's going to take, you're going to be looking at a year of work before you start to see progress, before an ego starts to form. And you go, hey, this is me. And you've got to have like a lot of uh, coaching, a lot of therapeutic contact to help the person with NPD to go, okay, that's you the you that sort of got crystallized and, and shot away and shoved in a coffin and dug underground in childhood. Now we need to bring that part of you out, which is frightening and difficult and is going to trigger emotional flashbacks and is going to trigger the superego, which then triggers more emotional flashbacks. The superego is going to fight like hell. The superego, because, because this process of healing kills the negative 
vicious superego. And it's like an alien inside of you. You know, when you like in the alien movies where they came over and they hit it with like a flamethrower and stuff. And it went, and it tries to kill everybody. It doesn't want to die. But it is like an alien in that it colonizes. It, it injects the person and it, it, it lies there within them and sucks the life out of them. So there's just this pale, crusty soul left who's mean-spirited, vindictive and predatorial, but it's actually the alien. The, 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 this is the, the colonization of the slave training in childhood that's inside of them. That's the, that's the problem. The superego isn't the problem, let me be very clear. The inner critic, the, the inner critic and the outer critic is a problem. That's a superego that's toxic, that's toxified, that's sending bad messages. We want the superego. We need a superego. If you don't have a superego, you wouldn't be capable of feeling healthy shame. You wouldn't be capable of feeling healthy guilt. And you might start vectoring up for psychopathy. You need a superego to know how to do well in life. So we've got to build an ego and we've got to fight that superego. So here's, I've given you four points for healing. Here's the fifth point. To, to practice, to physio the ego, to be like, you know, with my leg now, I have physio drills that are literally like, straighten your leg engage the muscle, straighten the leg, and it's over and over and over again, and it's gonna be months before that quad comes back. That's just the way it is. It's gonna take time. We need the NPD to develop an ego in order to fight the superego, the toxic superego, and cleanse it, and hopefully end up with a positive superego. That means creating a new inner parent, internalized inner parent, that's positive and not negative, but you can't install that Whilst the toxic superego, that alien runs the show, it's not possible. So we need strong ego. So strong ego, formed in adulthood, post hoc, as though you were a child trying to figure out the right way to live in the world. What's the appropriate way? I believe it is philosophy. I believe it would be um, to talk, and in talking, think philosophically about morals, about morality, about right and wrong. And the, NP, the NPD, in order to heal, has to do this. What is right? What is good? What is the purpose of life? They don't need to come up like, this is physio for the ego. I don't massively care what they say. I don't, ma not, the content is not important. The context is everything. So that they can develop moral boundaries. So that they can develop boundaries between themselves and other people. So that they can begin to grow in consciousness. Because if we don't, elevate the consciousness of the NPD, they'll remain NPD for life. Their consciousness needs to be elevated. We've got to move them to a point where, where they can grow into the ego. That's a part of themselves that's off, by the way. Say they've been in a coma for their entire life, and you go, you've got feet, you know. They go, no, I haven't, can't feel anything. They don't work anyway, I don't need stupid feet. Feet are for normal people. Screw normality, I'm special. And you go, yeah, okay, you've got feet though and you're trying to get them to use their feet, you're trying to get them to walk, I suspect that the, the, the wants, so imagine you now have a strong ego, you've, you've detoxified or you're working towards, that's gonna be a long ass process, it's gonna be hard to detoxify the superego, they've developed something of a moral philosophy so that, so that it's not about moral philosophy, this is incidental, it's like, it's like focusing on the pull-up bar, it's not the pull-up bar that counts, it's your muscles that count. The pull-up bar is not special or clever or useful. Moral philosophy allows you a training station to push, to pull, to work against 
to struggle with so that eventually you develop muscles and you go, yeah, I'm fucking strong now. So once the NPD actually, this is the irony, and I'll wrap with this because I realize I've gone for a very long time. Once they actually develop an ego and become what we, we all call them egotistical, when they develop in the Freudian sense, in the psychoanalytic sense, an ego, they won't need other people because they'll have agency. So once that ego is developed and I have agency, I'll grow up as an adult and get addicted to being an adult who's independent because narcissists are codependent. They need people. They're highly dependent on other people. They won't need that anymore. That's why the sad baby needs others. Ah, come. I want the thing. Uh, uh, uh. You do it for me is the sad baby archetype. The, the grumpy baby, the grumpy toddler archetype is you didn't do it for me and now you're going to pay. Now you're going to get the Tonka truck in the, in the shin. So they won't need that anymore. Now they'll be able to do it for themselves. This is not fantasy land. This process is not going to be like, oh, they started on day one and here's their progress. I would expect fully to be viciously attacked. Not by, we would say by the NPD, but by their superego. Because the superego is going to be like, oh shit, oh, oh no, 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 no. They won't need me anymore. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. Oh, no, 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 no. Attack, attack, attack. Attack the therapist. Attack the coach. Attack this stupid YouTube video. Attack the, the, the process. Attack the system. Attack humanity. Just don't kill me. Just don't kill me. Think of everything I've done for you up until now. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. It's like, uh, it's like you know, some funny scene from a film. But they catch the demon. You actually eventually corner the demon. It's like, no, 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 think of all I did for you. <laughs> you ruined my fucking life, fucker. So that, I would say, gives them agency. We've reduced the flashbacks. They don't need the NPD archetype anymore. It's no longer a part of who they are. Will they backslide? Oh, by the way, this is going to be like, no, screw you. I come back and... It'll be like, yeah, I hate this. Oh, okay, this isn't too bad. No, screw you. Ah, it'll be like that. But even when they get from point A to point B on this amazing graph I just drew for you, when they get here, they're still going to backslide. They're still going to go backwards again because this is, it's, it's primal. It's from childhood. That's their favorite way of, uh, sorry, it's, the, it's not favorite. There's no choice with an narcissist. They have no choices. Um, in, in how they, res in their archetypal emotional response, they do have moral choices once they're in that response. But we all have to understand, you understand it, person watching this, person who's probably the victim of narcissistic abuse, not the narcissist, how powerful an emotional flashback can be. I would get, um, my, my response for a couple of years was fight. And if I got into a rage, there's no reasoning with me. I got myself into a lot of trouble because eventually, you know, you, it, it, if you're not punching a car or breaking a phone, you'll be punching and breaking a person. And I got into a lot of trouble because I just couldn't handle my own emotions. But appreciate how all-consuming abandonment terror is. Appreciate how all-consuming shame can be. Appreciate how all-consuming the desire to prove your worth by predating, by attacking, by exploiting others can be. It's all about reestablishing order in the external world as a toddler. So I don't do it. It's not like, oh, I want the door to open. I'll go up and, and open it. That's ego. That's agency. That's executive function. This is no, I'll make other slaves do it for me. So 
that necessity of through deception exploiting others and enslaving others is what makes this such an abusive personality style but the actual core of narcissism itself isn't particularly abusive because it doesn't it's not interested in other people it's only fixated on itself because there is no ego so the abuse becomes should must be understood as incidental I don't count, you don't count, we don't count, we're not people, we're, we're things. If we get hurt, that's incidental when we're talking true narcissism. Okay guys, that's my thoughts on that. Sorry it was so long. I know it wasn't an easy watch either, um, but hopefully that'll help a little bit. Thank you very much for your time and your attention. Please stay grateful for everything that you do have. You know, a really strong attitude of appreciation for all the little things you have in your life will really help you through the times we're in right now. Thank you very much. I look forward to speaking to you soon. Cheers.